This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning, everybody. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to guide us as we continue to engage with God together this morning. And hey, today we're actually going to end our services a little bit differently than we normally do. But in order to end them differently than we normally do, we're going to have to start this time together a little differently than we normally would. So I'm going to ask you to be flexible and to go with me here and go ahead and grab your program. Inside of it, you're going to want to grab two things because we're going to use them right now. The first is this start here card. If you would just put your name on this, and if you're brand new with us, maybe your email address or some way for us to uh, contact you if you'd like to have us be a resource to you. Uh, and then on the back, if you have a prayer request that you want us to pray about, we'd love to be able to pray for you right now. Uh, if you have an answered prayer, we'd love to celebrate that and thank God for that. We'd love to be a church that prays together. And in just a second, we're actually going to pass some baskets, and you can just put this card in. I know we normally do this at the end, but again, we're going to be switching things up a little bit today. So if you would get that ready, if you have something that's been on your mind, on your heart, you'd like us to be praying for you about, go ahead and get that filled out. We're also going to be receiving the offering right now. So go ahead and get your tithes and offerings ready. And I always say, if you're a guest with us, please don't feel obligated to give. This is for those of us who call New Life Home. This is our opportunity to give back to God part of what he's given to us so that he can do what he wants to do in this church and in the city and around the world. And uh, I know sometimes we think, well, we'll wait and see how the message goes to see how much I give. But today you can't do that. We're just going to assume it's going to be a good message. So go ahead and give proportionate to what I'm telling you is going to be fantastic. So uh, I kid but not really. Let's be honest. Uh, But go ahead and get your offering ready. Uh, And while you're doing that, I want to highlight something that you may or may not know. Next week is Easter Sunday. Yeah, Yeah, I'm sorry. Let me try that again. I know you're busy because it takes a long time to write all those zeros, but uh, let's just try that again. Next, Next week, you guys, next week, like one week from today is Easter Sunday. Yes! It's going to be regular service times, 9, 15, and 11. And I want to highlight a few things. One, we've got Easter invitation postcards out in the lobby. If you didn't get one last week or if you've already given it away, I'd love for you to grab one of those and just keep it with you uh, in your purse or in your car, in your pocket. And as you're having interactions with classmates or friends or just somebody you meet on the street, and they seem interested in church, maybe pass them that invitation postcard and say, I'm going to be at 915. I'd love to have you join me. I'll keep my eye out for you. Because we found that Easter is probably the best time to invite someone to church. Christmas Eve is the second best time, but on Christmas Eve, a lot of us travel because of vacation. Easter, there is no spring break right now. Everybody's here. It's the best time to invite someone to church. So I just want to invite you to church next Sunday. And then Look for opportunities to invite a friend. People are open to coming to church, especially around these big days like Easter and Christmas Eve. And I will say, it's going to be full. We're going to do two services. Last year, we had almost a thousand people at New Life on Easter Sunday. So we're going to bring in more chairs. We're going to kind of, we're going to get cozy. We're going to get close. There's no leave a seat in between us, like the movie theater. We're going to really uh, pack this place out. So you'll want to come early. Uh, because this is one of those times when if you—I know you guys. I see where you sit every single week. If you want your seat, you got to be here early. And would you do me a favor? Because you're here and because we're family, I'm going to ask you to do me a big favor. Next week, would you consider not parking in our church parking lot, but parking 
across the way, just if you just literally went directly behind you, Mid-State Construction has about 75 spots that they've opened up to us. Would you park there next week so that it opens up space? Because our parking lot cannot hold a thousand people, but Mid-State has graciously offered their space. So if you do that for me, uh, we love that. We'll try to help you remember to go over there next weekend. If someone does say, hey, would you mind parking there? They're not trying to slight you. I'll let you in on a little secret. It's actually closer to park there than it is to park in the back of our lot. So you're welcome park next door. That would be absolutely lovely. All right. Uh, hey, we're already having fun, but I, I want to talk about something um, that, is, that is sobering uh, and really in light of what we're talking about today is, uh, is the reason why today is so important. Uh, I don't know if you've been on your news feed this morning, but there was a bombing of two churches in Egypt on their Sunday services, which would have been about 12 hours ago, and 36 Christians are dead and over a hundred are wounded. Um, And we're going to pray together in just a second. We're going to pray for those communities uh, whose lives are forever changed today. And we're going to talk about the fact that all of our lives can be forever changed with Christ, but their lives are changed in husbands and wives and children being lost. And so I, I don't mean to bring us into our services like this, but in the reality of the world we live in, as one church community, we want to be praying for our larger family, our church family today. So uh, I want to pray uh, for the, the families and the people in Egypt. Uh, it's not the only thing. We know that there have been this Syrian attacks. I mean, there's been so much happening. But specifically, man, my heart is so heavy for people who, just like us, are gathered together on Palm Sunday to, to engage with God, to have fun, to laugh, and then to have that happen. Boy, it's tragic. So I'm going to pray, and then our teams are going to pass— Uh, the baskets after I pray, so you can go ahead and finish getting ready. But would you join me as we pray? It's hard to know where to start, Lord. Not only these church bombings where brothers and sisters in faith have lost their lives today simply because they went to a place, a house of worship that should be a safe refuge. But for so many who are losing their lives around the world right now. It's days like this that I remember how important the cross really is and the work that you did on the cross, Jesus. And I would pray now, and we pray together as a community, for comfort and healing, that you would be wrapping your arms around people whose lives are now devastated, Um, If there's a way that you might use us, would you show us what that looks like even half a world away? And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would would bring your healing. And we look to the day when there will be no more war, no more tragedy, no more weeping and wailing and lament because you have brought all things together. God, we ask that you would bring that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's keep uh, our brothers and sisters in faith in prayer this week. Uh, our teams are passing baskets, and uh, as they pass, I'm just going to start talking because, listen, you guys are a highly intelligent group, and you can multitask. I know you can. Did you know? And there are, are different studies, but I'm going to choose the one that I'm going to choose as the right one. Uh, there are different studies that say only something like 10% of people can multitask. Other studies have said no one can multitask. That may be true, but I'm going to go with the one that says 15% can. 
and it's the top 15%. And listen, you guys are the top 15%. And here's how I know. You chose new life today, which lets me know that you are highly intelligent and can multitask. So go ahead, and as those baskets are passed, drop in your tithes and offerings, drop in your Start Here card. And I want to share with you uh, a little bit of my story. A friend said to me last week, he's been coming for two or three weeks, he said, every week I'm going to ask you something about yourself that I wouldn't know. So he'll be here, I think, next service. This is just preemptive for him. Here's something you might not know about me. In my life, there were th- I've had three major faith awakening moments where the lights came on and it was like, oh my goodness, that, that's it. That's it. All three of them happened around church camps, which if you're wondering, if you're a parent thinking, should I send my kid to camp? Is it worth it? I'm telling you, in my life, and I can't say for everybody, but in my life, these moments happened when I separated and got away by myself, well, with a bunch of junior hires and high schoolers, but away from everyday activity and engaged with God. But the first one was fifth grade. Uh, fifth grade, I was at this camp in Southern California called Indian Village. And if you were raised down in Los Angeles area, that was like your go-to church camp in the 90s. And there was a camp bonfire the last night, and they started singing Humble Thyself in the Sight of the Lord in rounds. If you, if you don't know what that is, you're not a product of the Protestant church in the 90s. But, you know, and he will lift you up higher and higher. Do you remember this song? Anybody? Come on. That's going to be in your head all day. And they're singing it. And I'm like, I want to humble myself in the sight of the Lord. So I went down to the campfire and I threw some sort of something in the fire, you know, like my, my sin. It was really a piece of lined paper, but threw my, my sin in the fire. That was the first great faith awakening where it's like, oh my gosh, God is, God is real. And here's what I realized in that moment. God is real. God is good. I do bad stuff. God can forgive me. That was what my fifth grade mind could intellectually kind of hold on to. The next one was when I was going into eighth grade, another camp, and we were going cross-country trying to get to Wyoming, I believe, and we're in Colorado, went to this church service. Full disclosure, I slept through most of the sermon because it was boring, and uh, slept through most of the sermon, woke up right at the end, and something in that last five minutes of that, of that message, I sensed God saying to me, someday, and this was, again, going into eighth grade, someday you're going to be doing that. Now, I disregarded that for the next 10 years or so. But at that moment, God spoke to me, and, and what I sensed was I was wiping the drool from my mouth. What I sensed was God has a plan for life. So fifth grade, you did bad. God is good. God can forgive. Seventh, eighth grade, God has a plan for your life. The last one was senior year. I was, um, I was out in this field at another camp and praying, and I'd heard the story of this, this lost son who goes off, and the father's waiting for him, searching him, and the father runs to the son— welcomes him back into the family and says, be, be one, walk with me, be part of this family. And I just said to God, God, if that's true, if that's you, if you're the father in the story and I'm the son and you're welcoming me into the family, I want to walk with you and I'll follow you anywhere you take me. And it was at that point that I realized that, that life with God is actually a relationship and a journey together, that he wanted to actually walk with me in this life. But what I realized is that in each of those three major faith awakenings— None of those gave me a full understanding of what Jesus did on the cross. They were all different aspects of who God is. The best I could tell you was, uh, I did bad, God is good, God forgives. Somehow the cross has something to do with that. But here's an interesting thing, and this is our, our big idea for the day. Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. We don't have to fully understand the work of the cross for it to have power in our lives. God was guiding me, drawing me to himself, bringing me into his family, saving me from life apart from him 
without me fully understanding what was going on the cross. But the more we understand what happened on the cross, the more we understand God's heart for all humanity. I put John 15, 13 uh, in there. You can look at it later, but it says this. It's Jesus talking, and he says, Greater love has no one than this, that you lay down your life for your friends. And Jesus laid down his life for his friends. And he showed his love on the cross. Now, we just kind of finished a series called Love Actually. And the first week of that series, uh, we said this. We read through a passage in the book of Ephesians. And at the end of it, it says that we're to love one another. And as we love one another with self-giving love, putting he before me or she before me, then we actually paint a picture of Jesus's love for the church. And as we head into Easter week, I thought, well, it's a great place. Let's start and end at the same place. Jesus' love for us. And so we actually kept the same slide, love actually, discovering what love actually looks like. Because on the cross, Jesus actually showed us what ultimate love looks like. So we are in this week leading up to Easter. If you were raised in the church in kind of a more traditional uh, church background, this is known as Holy Week. And there are things that happen throughout this week in the church calendar. And I thought to myself, Today seems like the perfect day to lay out for us what happened on the cross. And I thought about waiting and doing this on like a Good Friday service. And we've done Good Friday services in the past, and I'm sure we'll do Good Friday services again in the future. But the thing about Good Friday services is we usually have about 130 people come to a Good Friday service, which is awesome. But I didn't want to share this this beautiful story with 130 of us. I thought I want to share this story with 500 of us who are going to be gathered today on Sunday. So, If you're thinking, when's our Good Friday service? This is our Good Friday service. We're just not good at math. We didn't get the calendar right. This is our Good Friday service. And it's not, it's not accidental. It's because I want us to have all week to reflect on the truth of God's love revealed on the cross. So what was God up to on on Good Friday when Jesus gave his life on the cross? What was God up to on Easter Sunday? Well, the biggest thing that Jesus did on the cross was that Jesus opened the door for atonement between us and God, between God and humanity. He opened the door for atonement between God and humanity. And I left a little bit of space in your notes for you to write something down below that, because atonement is kind of this big church word, and we think, what, what does that really mean? So I left a little space for you uh, to spread that word out, and spread it out in three parts, right? At one meant. Spread it out. At one meant. Meant. That's the best way you can remember what atonement is. Atonement is when God brought us to oneness with himself. At one meant. See, every one of us, whether you would call yourself a Jesus follower or not, every one of us has something stamped in our human nature that wants to figure out how to become at one with, we'll just call it the higher power. Every one of us does. And if that higher power is within you, then that oneness looks like um, becoming one with ourselves. We go on a quest to understand ourselves, to discover who we are, become at one with the person that we are. If that, if that higher power is outside of you, which is what most world religions say, the higher power is outside of you, then we go on a quest to figure out how to become at one with the higher power outside of us. And every world religion and every philosophy, major philosophy, except for Christianity, says that it's our job 
to get at one with the higher power. Again, if the higher power is inside of us, our job is self-actualization. Figure out what's going on here. Become at one with myself. If the higher power is outside of us, different religions have different ways that we become at one with that higher power. It could be following the rules perfectly, or at least doing more good stuff than bad stuff. Uh, It could be working yourself into a trance, because in a trance-like state, then we become at one with the spirit world and at one with our higher power. I remember about four or five years ago, I was in India, and we were working with our ministry partners in India. We were driving out to this little tiny church, and we passed a huge Hindu temple, and there was a celebration going on. And as we drove, we had to slow down in our van because hundreds of people were walking through the street in almost a trance-like state, and they were bumping into our car and circling around our car and going. It was, it was a little disconcerting. It felt like zombies, quite honestly. I'm not, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't watch The Waking Dead, Walking Dead, but like, <laughs> but they'll give you a picture. Like, just walking and hitting the car and going around. And I asked our, our guides, what's happening? They said, oh, well, part of this celebration is working yourself into a trance, and they're going to go into the temple, and some of them will be rolling around on the temple floor to get into a trance. Others will be uh, giving money to get into a trance. Some might be cutting themselves to get into a trance. But, but they were working to get into a trance to get in connection with the higher power that was outside of them and bring oneness with himself and the higher power. The common theme is simply this. It's not the higher power's job to become one with you. It's your job to become one with the higher power. Because the higher power is perfect, and you are not. And it's not the job of the greater to reach the lesser. It's the job of the lesser to make its way to the greater. Now, here's what I'll say. All of world religions that talk about that, they get the problem right. God is perfect. The higher power, and we're going to switch to... God, the God of the Bible, is perfect. But they get the solution wrong. We can't get to that higher power, no matter what we do. Because anything less than perfect, at any point in our past, disqualifies us from a perfect God. This is where Christianity sets itself apart from every other major world religion. Christianity says that the greater that God came to the lesser on the cross. That Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And that Jesus came to bring at one meant atonement to us. I want to read a historical record of Jesus' crucifixion. And it's not in your notes because it was too long. And and I'm going to say it's long, okay? So if you're like, you know, like a four verse a day sort of person, this is your whole week's Bible study right here. You can just enjoy it. Here's what I would say. We're not going to like parcel out tiny pieces. I want us to catch the themes of what's going on, kind of get the bigger sense. So if that means for you uh, reading, if that means closing your eyes and just kind of imagining in your mind's eye what was happening, trying to get yourself there, do whatever you need to do. I'm going to read the whole thing and then give a few observations after that. But this is a record of Jesus crucifixion. It says, then he, and it's talking about Pilate, who was the governor in the region with which Jesus was crucified. Then he released Barabbas. We're going to come back to him at the very end. He released Barabbas to the people, but he had Jesus flogged, think tortured to within an inch of your life. And he handed him over to be crucified. 
when the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, that was the courtyard, they gathered a whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a, thorn of crown, a crown of thorns. And these were long, like inch-long thorns. And they set it on his head. More accurately, they pressed it onto his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt down in front of him and they mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. Then they spit on Jesus. They took his staff. They struck him on the head again and again. After they'd mocked him, they took off the robe. They put his clothes back on him. They led him away to crucify him. Verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced Simon to carry Jesus' cross because Jesus could not hold it after the brutal beating he'd received. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, the other on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him as he hung on the cross, shaking their heads and saying, you who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down off the cross if you really are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, those were the pastors and religious leaders of their day, and teachers of the law and the elders mocked Jesus. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now off the cross, and then we'll believe that he really trusts in, oh, he trusts in God. Let him, let God now rescue him if God really wants him. Because Jesus had said to the people, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said he's calling for Elijah because in the original language, those two sounded similar. And immediately one of them ran up and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah actually comes to rescue him. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. A few reflections on this record. One, this was gruesome. If we allow our minds to go there, which I don't know if you're like me, but when I, when I hear about something like a bombing in Egypt or, uh, or gas in, in Syria, I tr- something about my mind doesn't, can't go there. I have to force myself to actually picture what's going on because if I, if I allow my mind to go there, my heart follows and it, it is almost too much to bear. But if you allow your mind to go there, it was gruesome. If this was portrayed as it was in The Passion of the Christ, it'd be at least a rated R movie. Something to know about crucifixion, just to throw in your, you know, I don't know, tell a story at a party, look how smart I am. I don't know. Something to know about crucifixion is people think Romans invented crucifixion, but they didn't. Crucifixion actually was happening 500 years before Jesus walked on the earth. The Romans didn't invent it. The Romans perfected it. 
They learned how to get the most pain and the most suffering out of crucifixion before someone died. So they would experiment with the best way to crucify to really get the most suffering and the most pain. So, for example, if you nailed someone to the cross as opposed to tying them, uh, tying would actually take longer for someone to suffocate on the cross. Nailing would make it go quicker. If you put their hands straight above their head, they would die in eight to ten minutes. But if you kept their arms out and put their feet on a platform, which they sometimes did in crucifixion, someone could stay there for days, hanging and slowly dying. We know that Jesus was nailed to the cross. And we know that his crucifixion took about six hours of agony. We know that he was beaten to within an inch of his life. And the question becomes, why? It's an interesting insult that the religious leaders hurl at them. They say, he saved others. Why won't he save himself? Let him come down off the cross. And if you think about that question, Jesus could have. He could have come down off the cross at any moment but he chose not to. So we have to ask why, if the cross really does point out God's heart. And the more we understand what happened on the cross, the more we understand God's love for us, then what happened on the cross? There were at least three things that happened in the spiritual realm when Jesus died on the cross. The first is this, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. And I put Uh, a theological word in there. It won't change your life, but now you know what we're talking about. Penal substitution. He paid the penalty for our sin. All sin leads to death. All sin. By sin, uh, I'll, I'll define it, I'll describe it for us in just a second. But all sin leads to death. Relational death. When we sin against others, it, it kills relationships. Death of dreams. Spiritual death ultimately separation from God. Sin is the thing that separates us from a perfect God. And Jesus was not required to pay the penalty for sin because Jesus himself did not sin. Had he sinned, the religious leaders would have called him out on it. He, he lived a perfect life because he was both fully God and fully man. He was not required to pay the penalty for sin, which is death, but he was the only one who was uniquely qualified to die for the sins of all people. In fact, the author of Hebrews says it this way, we have been made holy. He's talking about us. We have made, been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ one time for all. So that atonement could happen. So that we could be at one with God. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. The second thing that happened on the cross is Jesus ransomed us from the bondage of sin and bondage to the devil. And and I say this a lot, and I hope it hasn't become white noise for you. Let me try to give us a working definition of sin, just for the sake of today so we can understand. Please don't let this just—I know I've heard it. Sin in action is the things that we think— say and do that hurt relationships, hurt our relationships with others, hurt us, ultimately separate us from a perfect and holy God. And I've said this before, I don't need to tell you what your sin is. No one does because you've laid in bed before and you thought to yourself, why did I do that? Why did I go there? Why did I think that or look at that or say that or smoke that or drink that? I'm never going to do it again. So you know what sin is. You know what hurts relationship. You know what's hurting you. But then a week later or a month later or a year later, we're looking at it, we're doing it, we're going there, we're smoking it, we're drinking it. 
And we think, why do I keep doing this over and over and over again? And the answer is this. Because without Jesus, without what he did on the cross, you and I are slaves to that sin nature that lives within us that causes us to do these things over and over again. Now, it's still our free will to do it, but there's something in us that moves us in the very direction we don't want to go. That's why Paul says this. He says, the very things that I don't want to do, I keep doing, but the things that I want to do, I can't seem to do. He's talking about this this sin nature inside of us. And when Jesus died and rose again, not only did he did he um, create a way to pay the penalty for our sin with God, but he also broke the power of sin in our lives. He ransomed us back from the devil and the bondage that we were living in. Notice what Jesus says about himself in Mark chapter 10. He says, even I, the son of man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We no longer have to live as slaves to sin anymore because of what Jesus did on the cross. One of my favorite worship songs right now is that song that says, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Man, it just, that's it. When Jesus died on the cross, he ransomed us. The, the devil, the enemy of God, had some sort of hold because sin entered the world, had some sort of hold and bondage over us. But when Jesus gave his life, he paid the penalty for our sin to God. He substituted himself in our place. And then he died and rose again. And that's why anytime someone says Easter, you could say he is risen indeed, or you could just cheer. Okay? I prefer cheering. So next week, if you say to me, he is risen, all I'm going to say to you is, Indeed, indeed. And then I'm going to cheer because, listen, when Jesus rose again, he broke the power of sin forever. Indeed, indeed. And that leads us to the third thing that Jesus did on the cross. He empowered us to live a new life with God by giving us the Holy Spirit. This is a game changer. I want you to notice what Jesus says about himself and the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's talking to his disciples in John chapter 16, the night before he's going to be crucified. And he says this to his disciples, Very truly I tell you, it is good for you that I'm going away. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. It's good for you that I go away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people did not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, and this is what we just talked about, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. That's the devil. He says, I have much more to say to you right now, but you cannot bear it. But when he, the Holy Spirit, When the Spirit of truth comes to you, he will guide you to all truth. He will not speak of his own will, but he will speak only what he hears from me. He will tell you what is yet to come. And the Spirit will glorify me because it is from me. He will receive what he will, and he will, what he, he, because he will receive from me and will make it known to you. Verse 15, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit 
will receive from me and will make known to you. The disciples said to Jesus, we cannot live without you. We can't. Don't leave us. Don't leave us. And Jesus turned to them and said, it's better that I go because when I go, I will open the door for the Spirit to come. And Jesus says, I'm living next to you, with you, but the Holy Spirit will live inside of you. And when we accept what Jesus did on the cross for us, Jesus replaces that sin nature with a new nature, a nature that wants to follow God, that wants to engage with God, that wants to seek after God, and Jesus fills us with his Holy Spirit, that God is not now living out there, but God's Spirit lives in us. And notice what he does. He shows us the difference between sin and righteousness. He starts to lead us to things that we never would have done before. I got stuck in an airport. I'm not going to tell the whole story now because it's too good of a sermon illustration. I'll use it later. Let's just say this. On Thursday night, a flight that should have taken an hour and five minutes took 13 hours. So, yeah. In that moment, about hour six, I realized, hey, God has put a new nature in me because the old nature in me would not have been happy right now. The old nature of me would have lost my ever-loving mind on that poor gate clerk, poor Michael. Poor Michael got called into work. His birthday was the next day. He planned on taking the weekend off. He was 22 years old. He got stuck being a gate clerk on the first time they shut down Oakland Airport in 23 years. Poor Michael. Praise God on Michael's behalf that I had a new nature. I'm not so sure about the guy behind me. But he, sh- he shows us the difference between sin and righteousness. The Holy Spirit living in us condemns the devil. When the devil tries to lie to us, he says, no, that's not true. You're a new creation. You're no longer a slave. You're a child of God. Verse 13 says the Holy Spirit guides us to truth. Verse 14 says the Holy Spirit glorifies us or glorifies God to us. And that's not even everything that happened on the cross, but that is enough to celebrate, isn't it? That's enough to glorify. That's enough to, oh my word, Easter, hold on, Easter is coming. We're doing okay. We got next week to get it right. But when I say happy Easter next week, you guys better lose your mind in a good way. I wanted to give us a full week to think about this. Because I'm telling you, our worship leaders have an impossible task every week. They lead us into communion, and they do a beautiful job, but we give them three minutes to talk about what happened on the cross. And they do a a brilliant job every week of guiding us into God's presence and leading us into communion. But listen, every once in a while, we just need to zoom out, and we need to take a Sunday and just remember what Jesus did. This is the center point of human history. The world is separated from what happened before Jesus to what happened after Jesus on the cross. What we come to celebrate next week is the turning point in human history, and it could be the turning point in your life. And I want to close by taking us back to the very first passage we talked about, that very first sentence. It said, Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. You were probably thinking as I read that, Who's Barabbas? Good question. Let me answer that for you. Barabbas was a notorious murderer. And every year around Easter week, or they called it the Passover celebration, the Jewish people did, every year at Passover, the Roman governor, who was Pilate at the time, would bring a criminal out to the people and release that Jewish criminal back to the people. 
as a sign of goodwill to try to keep favor with them because they knew if the Jews revolted, it could get bad for everybody. And so Jesus is in trial. Pilate sees Jesus and Pilate, Pilate looks at him and says, there's nothing worthy of death here. Then he has a light bulb moment. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll bring out Barabbas and place him next to Jesus and say, guys, I'll free one of these two people back to you. There's no way that people will take Barabbas. He's a murderer. He's an insurrectionist. No one wants him walking the streets. And so so Pilate brings Barabbas out and stands him next to Jesus and says, who do you want me to release? And the crowd started to murmur and the religious leaders started to stir them up. And they said, free Barabbas, free Barabbas. And Barabbas was set free. And Jesus was condemned. And Jesus was crucified. And most likely Jesus was crucified on the cross that was meant for Barabbas. Now, I want you to track with me for a second because we're going to go down a bunny trail here. But for me, it's just like... In Jesus' day, people were recognized by their father. So contrary to what your father said when he hit his hand, when he hit his, his thumb with a hammer, Jesus' last name wasn't Christ, okay? I just want to clarify, even though you're dead, Jesus Christ. No, that wasn't Jesus' last name. Jesus, just making sure you're still there. Jesus would have been known as Jesus, son of, and then his earthly father, Joseph. Jesus, son of Joseph. And the way that you would say Jesus, son of Joseph in Hebrew, in the, in the, the language of the people, would be Jesus bar Joseph. Bar was the title to say son of. Jesus bar Joseph. Now, this guy's name is his title, Bar Abbas, which is son of, and the word there is Abba, which means daddy or father. It's the word that a, a young Jewish boy or girl, when they were just a toddler, the first flirt, we, we would say like, like dada or papa. When they were children, they'd say Abba, Abba. It's, just, it's like what, a, what a, a toddler does is they run to their dad and they wrap their arms around him, Abba, Abba, daddy. So when when Jesus gave his life on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Abba, Bar Abba, when he came out next to Barabbas, we have two Bar Abbas. We have a guilty Bar Abba, a condemned murderer, and we have an innocent Bar Abba. And when Jesus gave his life on the cross, he took the place of the guilty Bar Abba the guilty son of the father. And the innocent son of the father took the place of the guilty son of the father. And it wasn't just for Barabbas. It was for all of us. Because all of us are sons and daughters of God, created in God's image to be God's children. And we are guilty bar Abbas. And on Good Friday, and as we celebrate on Easter, the innocent bar Abba, the innocent son of the father, takes our place so that we can become children of God once again. Right. This is what we celebrate when we take communion. That because of Jesus' body, which was given for us, we take this bread and we say, this is Jesus' body given for you. Because of Jesus' blood, which was poured out, and we say, this is, this is the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Because the innocent Son of God gave his life on the cross, 
the guilty children of God can be made right. As we're going to end our time with worship and with communion, praising God, thanking God for what he did on the cross. And so on on these tables around here, there's little pieces of bread and little cups of juice. And when we take that, we remember Jesus' body that was given for us and his blood that was poured out for us so that we could be made right with God. And in just a second, the worship team's going to come and they're going to play. And as they they play, I'm going to invite you to come and, and take communion. And if you've never taken communion before, uh, we would invite you. If this is clicking with you, if you're thinking, oh my goodness, I want that. This could be the mark of your time to say yes to Jesus, where you would say, I want to follow you. I want to walk with you. I, now I understand what happened on the cross, and I say yes to your substitute on my behalf. So I want to invite you, if you're a, a Jesus follower, and it could be in the last five minutes, or it could be in the last 50 years, celebrate communion as a way of honoring God and worshiping God. Jesus gives us one other opportunity to celebrate his death and resurrection, and it is baptism. And we just had a baptism service about three weeks ago where 21 of us were baptized. It was awesome. Yes, yeah, you can clap. It was fantastic. And we planned it, and we prepped it, and we promoted it. And I thought to myself as I wrote this message, I know we just had 21 people get baptized, but my goodness, if we're ever going to have a time where we would celebrate with Jesus his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism, today seems like a good day. So we filled up a a horse trough with water. I said to the, I said to the team in prayer, I said, um, I said, uh, the baptismal waters are open. And I thought that is so churchy. What I mean to say is we filled a horse trough up with water and you can get baptized in it. And it's warm. And we have a shirt for you to put on over your shirt. And we have a towel for you if you want to dry off afterwards. And we have a photographer who's going to take pictures so you can show your family. And it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be fantastic. Um, And I don't know if anyone's going to get baptized today, but the water's there if you want to. In baptism, we say, we get in the water, we go under the water, which represents Jesus' death and burial. And then we come up out of the water, which represents Jesus' resurrection, being raised to new life. And for us, it means we're being raised to a new life with Jesus. And again, I don't know if you're going to get baptized or not, but the water is there for you. If you want to get baptized as a way of honoring God And what better time to do it than Easter week? My goodness. Come on forward. Bring a friend if you don't want to come by yourself. Shoot, bring your whole row. (laughs) I would be happy to baptize you. If you have a friend who's been instrumental in your spiritual journey, maybe they're the ones who brought you to church, bring them up. I'll tell them, I'll kind of walk them through it. They can baptize you. It's going to be a fantastic time. I'm going to pray right now. And then we're going to open up for baptism and for communion. And as I pray, if you're here and you've never become a follower of Jesus, I want to give you a chance to do that today. There's no magic words for a prayer. And in fact, I was talking with our staff team about this the other day. This prayer moment is simply an outward expression of an inward transformation. I do my best in these moments to give words to something that's happening inside of you. It's not what makes you a follower of Jesus. It is simply an acknowledgement of what you already are experiencing. So if you are ready to make Uh, that decision today to become a follower of Jesus. I'm going to pray and give you some space to do that as well. And I'll let you know when that time comes. So would you join me as we pray? Jesus, thank you for your work on the cross. Thank you that so much happened 
on that Good Friday when you gave your life and on that Easter Sunday when you rose from the dead. And thank you, Jesus, that so much happens in our lives today because of your work some 2,000 years ago. As we go about this week, would you uh, help us to remember the depths of your love, that this is the apex of love, that you give your life for us, that we follow a living God, and that you did not expect us to get to you, but you came to us. Jesus, thank you for your work on the cross. And if you're here this morning and you're ready to give voice to this thing that's happening inside of you, that you're ready to become a follower of Jesus, you can repeat this simple prayer. Just say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you love me and that you gave your life for me on the cross. And I want to have a relationship with you. So would you come into my life? God, would you do that work of forgiving me of my sin? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit just like you promise? Would you show me what it looks like to walk in partnership with you every day from this day forward? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.